Heavenly Father, help us to remember tonight and any time we open the Bible that uh, this is your word. You are speaking to us. So give us uh, the right attitude to it. Let it humble us, help us to have soft hearts so that we respond to it in faith and repentance as we truly should. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of my uh, favourite movies is The Magnificent Seven and I'm not talking about the recent one with uh, Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt. Uh, I'm talking about the original one back in 1960 with uh, Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen, which means nothing to most of you. But there's a picture of it on the screen. Uh, every Saturday night, if my kids are home, if they're not out, uh, and we want to watch a movie, and people say, what, what are we going to watch? Every week I say, let's watch The Magnificent Seven. And every week there's a groan, and we don't get to watch The Magnificent Seven. So anyway, we're going to watch it tonight. No, I'm only joking. Uh, but uh, it's a Western. That's what it is. It's one of the greatest Westerns. It's about a poor little Mexican village who are being terrorized by bandits all the time and they decide they've had enough so they send three men to go and find some gunfighters to to come and and protect their village and fight off the bandits and basically the idea of the movie you I'm sure you understand how every, every movie is exactly the same they come for the money but they find themselves in this little Mexican town and so forth and the ones that survive actually I won't give any more away uh, it's actually based, I was just talking to someone before, it's actually, I was thinking about it, it's based on a uh, Japanese movie made in 1956. If you want to go and find the original, it's called The Seven Samurai. It's actually known as one of the greatest movies, just showing my movie nerdness there. But anyway, uh, I think the original, the original Magnificent Seven is actually in Acts. Uh, and it's in this little section we're in here in the story, because the first five chapters of Acts, we've been looking through this book, the first five chapters, really focused on the apostles and especially Peter and John, because they were the main two of the 12 apostles. So it focused on them. Then when we got to chapter six, flick back now to chapter six in your Bibles, that's why you want to have your Bible there. Uh, you remember the apostles at the start of chapter six are getting distracted from their role of preaching and praying. So their job is meant to be preaching the gospel and praying, but they're getting caught up in, in arguments about where the money should go and who should get this or that. Uh, and so uh, they get these seven helpers and they appoint them to sort of be the logistics guys. Last week in one of the sermons by one of our student ministers, there was a great line where he said, these were the spreadsheet guys. That's what they were, uh, the accountants managing the finances. But, and this is really important, especially as we come to our AGM next week, actually, and appoint spreadsheet guys to be like our parish council and wardens, uh, what, notice what it says about them. They were picked because of their godliness. They were picked because they were full of the Spirit uh, and, and they had wisdom from God. Uh, and that meant that even though they had a job of managing the finances, they couldn't but help go out and preach the gospel. Uh, to go with my movie theme, it's like they got picked to be the bookkeeper for the Magnificent Seven. And, and then when the fighting started, they said, give me a gun. I, I want in on this. And so last week, we met the great hero of the faith, Stephen. See, whatever good press Stephen gets, he deserves more. Every Christian should just all the time thank God for Stephen and praise God for Stephen. He was the first Christian martyr. He stood up in Jerusalem when they didn't want to hear about Jesus. He preached about Jesus and they stoned him to death. But he didn't care. So do you remember last week as Dave was sharing with us how as he came to his death, he looked up and he saw Jesus welcoming him into heaven. He said, I, I don't care if you put me to death, I'm going home. And so you can imagine at this point, the Jewish leadership thought, surely this is going to kill off this, this silly Jesus movement. 
Whenever we've had one of these sort of crazies come around before, kill a few people, that'll sort them out, and they head back for the hills. That's what they would have thought. They even up the ante. So look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 8, our reading from tonight, and you'll see led by Saul. Now we come to know him as Paul. Uh, Saul was his Hebrew name, Paul was his Greek name, uh, but he led the charge at this point. He was persecuting the church, going from house to house. It's like the worst things that happened during the Second World War and things like that, dragging Christians out, putting them in prison. And again, surely this will kill it off, they thought. Surely this would put an end to it. But you cannot stop the unstoppable gospel of God. Uh, another of our students preaching last week used the image of trying to, it's like they were trying to put out a fire by hitting it with a stick. And you know what happens when you hit a fire with a stick? The embers just sort of explode out and start all these other little fires before you know it. Well, that's exactly what happened here. This persecution just spread the Christians out. The, the apostles stayed and fought the fight in Jerusalem, but everyone else ran out of Jerusalem. But wherever they went, they started telling people about Jesus. And today we get the story of Philip. I like the fact that Philip's the second hero of the Magnificent Seven. He spells his name wrong, misses an L, but that's okay. Anyway, Philip's story, I think, Troy alluded to this before, it's just one of the great stories of the Bible. Uh, and I've broken it into two. I've called both of them the unstoppable gospel. But the first one is the unstoppable gospel even to Samaria. And this is starting at verse 4. So look there, Philip flees from Jerusalem and he goes to the most unlikely place. He goes to Samaria goes to the Samaritans as we know them. Now, why is that so unlikely? It's because Jews and Samaritans hate each other with an absolute passion in that way that only close family members who've come to hate each other can understand. Uh, because that's what they were. The Samaritans were half Jewish. So do you remember back when we looked at two kings last year, how there was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, but the northern kingdom got wiped out? And then they imported other people in to live there and they mixed with some of the locals. And so their religion was like a Jewish mixture. That's what it was. It's, uh, they, they didn't trust or they didn't listen to most of the Old Testament, just the first couple of books. They built their own separate temple up in the north rather than going to Jerusalem. And, and so the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. That's why when Jesus wanted to offend his Jewish listeners, what did he do? He told them a story about a good Samaritan. Because there are no good Samaritans, is their way of thinking about it. It was an oxymoron. So why would Philip go there of all places? You're running out of Jerusalem. Why not go and find some good Jewish people to share the gospel with? Well, why did he do it? It's because Jesus had modelled it, hadn't he? So if you remember back in the Gospels, do you remember the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well? And then when she listened to what Jesus said, she brought out a whole village to listen to Jesus. And they loved what Jesus had to say. More than that, more than Jesus modelling it, just before Jesus left his disciples behind and ascended into heaven, this is what he said. He said, you will be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, then in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So Jesus had told them, I want you to go here. And Philip had got the message. Look at verse 5. It says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. And the wonderful thing is, they listened. Look at verse 6. It said, they paid attention with one mind. Uh, they were amazed by the miracles Philip did. That was pretty awesome. But especially they listened to the message about Jesus. Isn't that just the greatest joy when you actually, when you hear that or when you see that? It's wonderful when people hear the good news, but the most beautiful thing in the world is when people listen to the words, when people hear about Jesus and they listen. 
But the Samaritans already had a miracle worker. They already had their own guy they were following. His name was Simon the Sorcerer. Sorry if your name's Simon tonight, but I'm the good guy and you're the bad guy tonight. But anyway, look at verse 9. It says, a man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his sorceries for a long time. It takes a special level of hubris to call yourself the great power of God, doesn't it? Anyway, it seems this guy really did practice magic. It was probably demonic probably dabbling in the occult uh, and that sort of thing and you have to remember spiritual powers are real and dangerous we uh, the greatest lie of the devil is to convince the modern world he doesn't exist the devil is real demonic powers are real and this guy was meddling in it and it seems he had set himself up as some sort of messiah some sort of or at least a representative of god but here's where you see the power of the gospel look at verse 12 says but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ both men and women were baptized then even Simon himself believed isn't this just the greatest story uh, it's always a great story to hear of people becoming Christians isn't it isn't that that's the greatest news of all that's why I, I got so many messages during the week from people who love the big day out uh, most of them weren't thanking me for my talks most of them were excited about the stories they'd heard of people becoming Christians and that sort of thing but that's what gets us excited that's what makes us tear up uh, as Christians that's what we long for more than anything but there's something more to see here in this incident so I've called the next part is this real look from verse 14 See, the apostles and the people down in Jerusalem, they heard what happened and they thought, we better go check this out. I mean, Samaritans becoming Christians, that doesn't sound right. So they send up the two big hitters, they send up Peter and John to have a look and that's where it gets a bit strange. Look from verse 15. It says, after they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that so strange? Well, it's because we know from the rest of Scripture, don't you receive the Holy Spirit when you become a Christian? It's not like you become a Christian and then a few weeks later, you, you, you receive the Holy Spirit. That's not how it works in the rest of the Bible. In fact, the Bible tells us you only ever put your faith in Jesus because the Holy Spirit is at work in you. That's, that's how it works. This seems to suggest, though, that it's a two-stage process. You come to faith in Jesus and then you get the Holy Spirit later on. And, and sadly, that, that is what Pentecostal churches and, and charismatic Christians have taught, that you, you need a second blessing, uh, a second instalment of the Holy Spirit, which is often tied or proved by speaking in tongues or other languages. And, and this is a passage that people go to to support that idea. The, the problem is that the rest of Scripture doesn't support that. The rest of Scripture makes it very clear that the moment you believe, you receive the, the good deposit, the deposit of the Holy Spirit guaranteeing your inheritance. More than that, besides not being biblical, when people go down that path, it actually causes division in the church because uh, you end up with this idea that there are two levels of Christians. There are the Christians who just, you know, have heard the gospel and then there's the spiritual Christians who are, who are a level above or something. If you were a Christian in the 80s or 90s, you can ask the five or six of us here who were uh, later on. If you were a Christian in the 80s and 90s, you might have had Christian friends who told you that you weren't spiritual. 
because you didn't speak in tongues like them. That happened to me as a young Christian. I had people tell me that. But no, the Bible is very clear. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here? Why does it happen in this way here? Well, I think this is a one-off moment where God is validating a massive moment in his plans for the world. You see, this is the first time the gospel has gone beyond the Jews. This is a massive moment. Uh, It's not to Gentiles yet, that's not for a couple more chapters, it's sort of to half-Jews, that's what they were. But the first Christians were really going to struggle with this. Even though Jesus had talked about it over and over again, they were going to struggle with this. It was so ingrained in them that how could God ever accept Samaritans? It's interesting, something similar happens with the first full-on Gentile, Cornelius, to be converted in Acts 10, but we'll get there in a couple of weeks. And so here, I think what's happening is God wants to show this conversion is real. And these Samaritans have truly come to know Jesus. And more than that, he wants to show the other Christians that they need to set aside all their old animosities and welcome these people into the people of God as true brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the way he shows that is to have Peter and John go there and effectively have another Pentecost. So remember how Pentecost showed the coming of the Spirit on the Jews, that that first moment of preaching the gospel and conversion. Well, it's here. It's like, here is another Pentecost. And so it's saying, these guys have got everything you've got. These guys, they have got the gospel. They know Jesus just like you. And that's what Peter and John were showing them. But sadly, it wasn't real for every individual there. So come with me to the last part of this first story, verse 18. I've called it, you can't buy God's spirit. See, Simon, the old sorcerer, was watching everything going on and he thought, wow, I want a bit of that. He thought, I want in on that. Look at, look at that. Look, if you, imagine being able to lay your hands on people and give them the Holy Spirit. You know, I'd like to be able to do what they're doing. And so he tries to buy the Holy Spirit. He goes to Peter and John, he tries to buy it. Look from verse 18. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power too, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter is just appalled that anyone would think like that. He rebukes him, he tells him that he's wicked, he he tells him that he's poisoned by sin. It's one of those questions, we don't actually know whether Simon was converted or not. I'm I'm getting in ahead and answering one of the questions, so you don't have to ask at the question time later on. The, The reality is, sometimes people profess faith in Jesus, they they believe in that sense, but in time their profession is found not to be real. Uh, And we see that in other parts of Acts, we see it in other parts of the New Testament. Maybe that was Simon, so maybe he professed faith, but it wasn't actually real, his heart wasn't actually changed. Or maybe he had become a Christian, but this was just a massive area of sin, his greed and his desire for power and all that sort of thing, that he still had to deal with. And the thing is, you know, we never actually find out if he repents and finds forgiveness and finds Jesus. He asked them to pray that the bad stuff won't happen to him. But that's not a prayer of repentance, isn't it? It's not a prayer of repentance to say, pray for me that bad stuff won't happen to me. You, you never find out whether he truly trusts in Christ. But... He is responsible for a word in the English language that will help you win Scrabble the next time you play. And it's the word simony. People know that word? It's not a word we use anymore. It means to try to buy religious influence. As sad as it is, people 
since the beginning have tried to peddle the gospel for profit. I think that's what was going on here with Simon. He thought, oh, man, I can make money out of this. I'll, I'll pay for this and then use it for my advantage. And you only have to turn early morning TV on to see some terrible examples of that. And God will judge people who try to use the gospel for personal gain very harshly. A gospel worker deserves his wages. Our church rightly ensures that me and the other ministers are provided for. It's one of the reasons at the AGM you get to see the accounts, to see that that's happening. But the pastor or the minister who makes themselves rich off the sheep or the person who tries to buy influence over other Christians, they should fear God's judgment, like Simon here. But it's not just televangelists who need to hear this, it's actually every Christian. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we heard the story of uh, uh, Barnabas and he was sort of set up against Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, incredibly generous, Ananias and Sapphira holding on to their money. Uh, and in that chapter, we had a call to be generous, to be sacrificial in our giving. The opposite danger for generous people, if there's a danger for stingy people of not being generous, the danger for generous people is to think that your giving buys you something. And I've heard, had this over the years. People say, I give a lot of money to the church. I expect you to visit me. I give more than them. So you should give me a special place in the church or a plaque on the wall like previous generations did. We've been learning in the Sermon on the Mount, haven't we? If you get your reward here in the acclaim of other people or in special service or something like that, there is no reward for your generosity in heaven. Some people need to be challenged to be more generous, not stingy with what God has given them. Sometimes generous people need to be challenged to give for the right reasons. You cannot buy God's favour. It is free. It is grace. It's a gift. But I would hate it if we finished Philip's story on the sin of Simon. Because the main point here is God's unstoppable gospel has gone where no person ever thought it would go, which is to the most unlikely people, the Samaritans. And the next adventure of Philip brings that point home to us once again. So come with me to verse 26, and I've called this the unstoppable gospel, even for eunuchs. I need to ask at this point, do I need to say what a eunuch is? A eunuch, I'll get it out of the way. A eunuch is a man who has had his testicles cut off. That's who this guy is, just in case, because someone asked that in the question time this morning. And good on them, because the person next to them didn't know. But anyway, so here's Philip doing this great work in Samaria, when an angel appears to him, and tells him to go and hang out in the desert. It's amazing how often God sends angels or, or sends his prophets out into the desert. Here, he says, go and sit on the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. And he goes, and as he waits there, along comes a chariot. And the man in the chariot is an Ethiopian eunuch, who is like the right-hand man of the Ethiopian queen. Uh, now, this seems strange to us, but in the ancient world, slaves were often uh, made eunuchs, especially if they were working with a queen, for obvious reasons. I'm sure you can work it out. But these slaves could actually rise up to really prominent positions and become very powerful and very wealthy. And this man had effectively risen up to be the treasurer of all Ethiopia. Now, you might think, well, this man was a Gentile. He, he would have been an African. He would have uh, been from what we now call Sudan, probably. That's what they called Ethiopia, the bottom of Egypt there. Uh, probably from there, but some people say, some people say, this must be the first Gentile to be converted, but Acts is pretty clear that's not for a couple of chapters. Uh, I think this man was a bit like a Samaritan. 
He was on the fringe of the Old Testament people of God. If you look at the end of verse 28, go there. It says, he had come to worship in Jerusalem. So clearly, he had come to know the God of the Bible. He'd come to know Yahweh, the the God of the Old Testament. He'd effectively become a Jew, what we call a, a proselyte or a convert. But he could never truly be a part of it because the Old Testament law said a eunuch could not go into the temple. So you see, he's gone all the way to Jerusalem just to hang around at the edges of the temple. He's come to know God, but he can't fully be involved in the life of God's people. So you see why I say he's like a Samaritan. He's on the fringe. But anyway, here he is. He's in his chariot. He's reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. I hope someone else was driving or or he'd he'd parked for a driver reviver on the side of the road. But, But Philip runs up to him and he says, look at verse 30. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, how can I? I haven't got anyone to teach me. I haven't got a a guide. And so Philip sits down with him and they read that wonderful passage from Isaiah 53 together. So they read about one who was led like a sheep to the slaughter. They read about one who had justice denied to him. They read, the eunuch says, tell tell me, who is this talking about? Who is this, this one whose life was taken from the earth? Isaiah was writing 800 years ago. Was he talking about himself? Is it a biography? What's he talking about? Who is this person? And this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse 35. So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning from that scripture. I would have loved to have been there. Philip said to him, do you know Isaiah, writing 800 years earlier, was talking about Jesus. And he said, let me tell you about Jesus. It was Jesus who was led like a lamb to the slaughter. They crucified him. And I'm sure Philip would have then taken him back a couple of verses to Isaiah 53 verse 5, not that they had verse numbers then, but uh, he would have taken him back to this where it says, but he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. See, Philip would have explained how Jesus' death was paying the price for his sin and for our sin that his death was taking the punishment that we deserve. He would have explained how Jesus rose again and now we can know that he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. He would have explained how every person needs to repent and every person needs to put their trust in Jesus. He would have talked about forgiveness. He would have talked about the gift of eternal life. He, he, He would have said, we will all be raised with Christ. And after he explained all of that, in this wonderful moment, the man decides to become a Christian. He puts his faith in Jesus. And so they spot a little patch of water, perhaps on the side of the road. There wasn't a lot of water around there. And they stopped the chariot. And then and there, he was baptized. No second experience here, do you notice? No need for Peter to come and lay hands on him. He was baptized. He became a Christian. This man was now a disciple of Jesus and a part of the true people of God. See, this is wonderful, isn't it? This man who could never be included before. This man who knew the true God but could never be included, well, there are now no boundaries stopping him. He was welcome because he had come to know Jesus. And then it tells us straight away, the Spirit takes Philip away to some other places that need to hear about Jesus, but we don't hear about any of that. And I love the end of the story. Look at verse 39. It says, but he, the man, went on his way rejoicing. Isn't that wonderful? Why wouldn't he? He had started that day excluded from being a member of the people of God. 
In the middle of the day, he'd been confused as he read his Bible and wondering, how, how can I ever understand this? Now he had found eternal life. Now he had come to know Jesus. And what else is there to do other than rejoice when that happens? Well, as we've gone through Stephen's story last week and Philip's this week, I hope we've seen all sorts of encouragements from what I've called the Magnificent Seven. I wish they told us about the other five guys, but they don't. Uh, here are three final lessons to take from last week and this week from Stephen and Philip. First lesson I want us to take is I want you to remember that the gospel is unstoppable. So many times throughout history, people have tried to kill off the church. For 2,000 years, they've been trying to kill off the church. Every time the gospel just keeps going out. Every time people just keep getting saved. And in fact, often when there is heightened persecution, when there is particular persecution, the church actually grows. That's the history of the last 2,000 years. I remember reading a secular historian and he just could not explain the church. It was a mystery to him. It was so annoying reading it. He's saying, there is no historical reason why the church survived this and why the church survived that. I thought, just get the obvious answer, mate. Jesus rose from the dead. You know, that, that's the answer. And I want to say to you, don't get disheartened that at this time our society seems to be becoming more and more antagonistic to the gospel. Don't let that dishearten you. God's gospel is unstoppable. In fact, can I say, I think at the moment, it's actually only the opinion makers of our society who, who are antagonistic to the gospel. When I talk to people just in general life, they are open to finding out about Jesus. I've never seen a greater openness than we're seeing at the moment to people hearing about Jesus. But I want to remind you, like Philip, we know the God of the universe. God is in control. His gospel is unstoppable. Second thing, remember that the gospel is for all people. How wonderful that the first steps of the gospel outside Jerusalem were to share it with people who had been excluded up until now, with Samaritans and a eunuch. And that's just yet another reminder that everyone needs to know about Jesus. Isn't that right? One of the things I am most excited about over the last few years at our church is the way our church has started more and more to reflect the suburbs around us. That we've actually welcomed, welcomed people in from different backgrounds, from different ways of life. And it's just a reminder here again, it is our job to welcome anyone who comes to know Jesus. There are no barriers to anyone coming into the people of God if they have put their trust in Jesus. But the big lesson and last lesson I want us to take from today is I want us to see Philip as a model for every one of us of evangelism. See, like Stephen, Philip is a hero of the faith. As I start off, these guys are magnificent. So one thing we're meant to take from these stories is just their example of courage, just their example of zeal, just the way they wouldn't take a backward step. People said, don't tell us about Jesus. They said, let me tell you about Jesus. You know, they, they were unrelenting. They may have been appointed to look after the finances, but they didn't care. They knew telling people about Jesus is what matters. But what I also love about these two stories of Philip is the way they model two different types of evangelism to us. See, in Samaria, it seems, Philip went into town and set up his microphone and speaker to use our sort of way. Sometimes when I'm in town, there's, uh, there's a guy on the corner of George Street who sits there with his, with his speaker and his microphone and tells people about Jesus. And sometimes I walk past him with other Christians, like, oh, I wish he wouldn't do that. It's such a counter it's such against our culture and I go no we need every way 
of telling people about Jesus. It was really interesting though, the old white guy wasn't getting a crowd. I went to another corner and there was a massive islander guy with tats calling everyone bro and everyone said, I'll stop and listen. Yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing how that works. But anyway, uh, see the point is we need preachers. We need people who can speak to crowds. That's one way of telling people about Jesus. We need people who can, who can talk to crowds, whether it's 30 people at a life course on a Tuesday night or, or 150,000 people at, at, at the showgrounds when Billy Graham came all those years ago. We need people with that gift, with that boldness to preach the good news. But then the second story here is different, isn't it? It was just one-on-one. The Ethiopian man was reading the scriptures. He had questions. And Philip was there to help him understand God's word. And I love that second story because that is a great model that every person here can follow. See, one of the best ways to help people is to invite them to just read the Bible. And if they've got questions, ask you. And any Christian can do that. So many people in our church have become Christians just because a friend who was a part of our church invited them to read the Bible. So many people. See, sometimes people can become a Christian just by reading the Bible. There are great stories preachers tell. You know, I remember hearing one of a guy walking down the street and a piece of paper was floating on the wind and it then went onto his chest like this and he went and it was John 3.16. It was a page ripped out of the Bible and he read it and became a Christian. That can happen because God's word is powerful. But more often it happens like this. Most people are like the eunuch and they say, this is intriguing I'm struggling to understand it. Can you help me? Can you help me understand it? And any Christian should jump at that opportunity, shouldn't we? Every Christian should long for someone to say that to them. And if you don't think you could help someone like that, I want to say to you, well, then work at getting to know your Bible better so that you can. One tip someone gave me years ago is just get to know one of the Gospels really well. Get to know Mark really well, or Luke really well, or Matthew or John. Get to know one really well so that you can suggest that gospel to read with people and you feel confident that you can answer their questions. I know I'm like a broken record on this, but do the intro to the Bible course when we offer it later in the year so that if someone says to you, I'm reading Isaiah 53, you can say, let me show you how that points you to Jesus. And if you still worry that you couldn't answer people's questions, well, firstly, remember it's actually a great testimony to people to say, I don't know but let's find out together. It's actually a really wonderful testimony to say, I'm, I'm no, I don't know the answer to that. Let's go find someone who does. Let's go to the life course together. Let's go to a Bible study. Let's sit down with another Christian friend who might help us. But also remember, you only need to know a little bit more than someone to be able to help them. Actually, uh, this uh, illustration is about several people in this room tonight, but back when Sam was about six or seven, his team's soccer coach uh, had to quit had to leave and they asked me to coach and uh, some of you might remember those training sessions where I said run around the oval a few times and kick the ball in the goal because uh, I thought I know nothing about soccer I don't even like soccer <laughs> I actually hate soccer Re- really I, I, I watch like high level soccer but I really don't like soccer and I don't enjoy it what good am I as a coach but then I thought surely I know more than some six-year-old boys Surely, I know that you've got to get the ball from that end to that end and into the goal. I know how to kick a ball. I can do this. See, I didn't need to be an expert to help people learn to kick a ball and have a good time and hopefully win. Well, you do not need to be a scholar. You do not need to be an expert to sit down with someone and help them understand God's word. 
You do not need a theological degree to help someone by pointing them to Jesus. Any of us can be a Philip. Any of us can help a person come to know Jesus. And my prayer tonight is that you might be encouraged to do that with your friends. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful stories of these heroes of the faith. We thank you that people like Stephen and Philip stood up and had the courage to preach the gospel even when people were opposing them. And we thank you that Philip showed us that the gospel is for all people and that any person can come to know Jesus and find salvation in him. And Father, we pray that we might walk in Philip's footsteps, that we might be ready to open the scriptures with people and ready to point them to Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.